Alright. Well, who was uh, blessed during worship? I was quite blessed. I'm going to try to preach now. Uh, if you have your Bibles and you can open them to Daniel chapter 1, uh, we're going to start there tonight. I'm going to pray and then we'll, uh, we'll read there so you have a minute. Open your Bibles, Daniel chapter 1. Lord, we thank you that you're here. Thank you for your presence, Jesus. I ask that the clarity of your voice will be heard, that you will resound, God, that you will unveil who we are in your sight, who we are as your works of art, God, that you will disclose to us perhaps even more of uh, the intentions and the goodness of your heart that you wove into us when you created us out of your infinite love, God. I pray that we will come into a closer contact with that unknowable goodness that motivated you to speak and form us by hand. God, I thank you that we are your craftsmanship, that we are the ones that you love, that we are the pinnacle of your creation, the divine masterpiece where you revealed yourself most clearly in all of creation, God, that the beauty of this earth, God, and the mountains and the seas and the valleys, God, and all of it is surpassed by your most beautiful creation, which was man and woman made in your image, God. I ask that we will leave here with a deeper revelation and a deeper knowing of who we are as your image bearers, God, and the privilege that comes in being the ones beloved by God. So we honor you tonight. We thank you that you are here because you want to be. Amen. Well, last week uh, got a lot of a lot of feedback. Um, seemed like we struck a chord, and there's some resonance in the community just with what the Lord is speaking. And so, uh, we're going to continue. I, I opened. Uh, I talked about kind of a Renaissance, being a Renaissance church last week, and the Lord. Uh, you know, has a lot of things, so I'm not going to try to recap it. You can listen on the podcast if you weren't here. But uh, talked about that we have to know our context if we're to be effi- uh, effective and ministering within it. And so every athlete, you need to know the rules of your sport. If you did not know those, you would not be able to effectively play that sport because you need to understand the context. You need to understand your playing field if you're to effectively uh, operate within it, uh, minister within it. And I talked uh, about a little of the reality of the playing field of the United States of America being a postmodern nation uh, that has, you know, how do we, talked about the question, how do we give bread to a people that do not know they are hungry. And uh, that was kind of the premise. And I talked in that, that instead of looking at the book of Acts as really the context that we're in, that would be more um, what the, the global south would look like or pre-Christian nations right now. Um, we uh, should draw inspiration from people like Daniel, uh, Joseph, who were actually engaging in um, you know, powerful, dominant nations that had no appetite for the God of Israel. And um, so we're going to do that now, and I'm going to spend some time uh, looking at the life of Daniel to unpack 
the wisdom with which he walked amongst a culture of idolatry. And so uh, we're going to start just in, in chapter 1, and, and I, we're going to start, it, it's right there. I didn't get much further than chapter 1 this week, just as far as where I wanted the, felt the Lord wanted us to land. Um, so the context is that uh, Israel has been captured by Babylon. By Babylon, excuse me. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar came. He took them captive. He took uh, the, the articles from the house of God and he ransacked Israel, took their treasures, and, and, and went back uh, to Babylon, which is north of Israel. And then in verse 3, we'll start, and it says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years. Years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them were the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. And uh, so basically, uh, the king is, uh, he's smart, they know what they're doing, and this is actually a forced assimilation tactic. So they are trying to assimilate and force the adoption of Babylonian culture. Does that make sense? And so the first thing is he grabs, uh, you know, leaders, essentially, amongst the people of Israel. Daniel uh, was uh, the foremost of these. And the first thing, the first crisis that they face as they're now tasked to live out faithfulness to this covenant God, Yahweh, they're trying to live faithfulness. And the first crisis Daniel comes to is that he is given a new name, right? And his name, Daniel, is a name that's associated to Yahweh, right? So El Elohim Daniel. That's uh, so how you say it in Hebrew, I think. And uh, that means the Lord is my judge. So Daniel had an identity that was tied to his God. And the first thing that happens when they're in Babylon is that he's given a new name, Belteshazzar. And Bel is a word for, uh, would it be a connotation or a shortened uh, for the god Marduk of Babylon. And that would have been like Zeus for the Greeks. He was the head of the pantheon of the Babylonians' gods, right? So they're trying to identify Daniel according to their gods, the gods of their culture, as opposed to the God of Israel. Does this make sense? Right? So he's actually facing an identity crisis very early on, first thing. And uh, in, in ancient Near Eastern culture, a name would be more, would be more like saying uh, your nature. All right? So it's the whole nature of a person was actually found in the name. It spoke to the identity. It spoke to the essence. It spoke to the character, the decision-making. So when Jesus say, if you pray anything in my name, he's not saying if you just pray anything you want in Jesus' name. He's saying if you will pray what is in my nature, if you will pray what, what is in my very essence and heart, 
it will, it will come to you, right? So Daniel is experiencing an identity crisis, and there's actually a very intentional attack coming against him by this Babylonian culture in this forced assimilation that you are not to derive your identity, your nature from the God of Israel. You're to derive your nature, your identity from the gods of culture, right? From Marduk. This would have been like, you know, um, prosperity, like the head of the gods, Right? And I want to contextualize this because sometimes, especially growing up in the Western culture, we actually don't really have a grid for idolatry. It's actually really easy to look at idolatry as like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like you're, you're worshiping a, a wooden stick or a, you know, a, a sculpture. And when you go uh, to places like India um, and other cultures that are still operating and more of an ancient type of worship of actual idols, it actually is very humbling because it opens your eyes to the idols that we worship here in America. And we think that we are above this, but we are not. So I actually want to contextualize this for a second. So Marduk would have been like Zeus, right? So the heads of uh, Babylonian culture, the pinnacle of culture. And uh, culture will always try to define people. It loves to define people by the idols that it worships. Right, I want to say that one more time. Culture likes to define human beings by the idols that the culture worships. Right. So we do not have Marduk and Zeus perhaps in America, but I just want to propose a few idols that we do worship quite regularly, and this is by no means an exhaustive list, right? But we have an idol of pop culture, which tells us uh, that it will make you influential. Uh, we have an idol in the athletic realm that, that promotes that you will be dominant if you become great, if you give your life to worship uh, athletics. We have a political idol that tells us you will become powerful if you will rise um, in the political room. We have an idol in business. You will be rich. You will be wealthy. We have an idol in the cosmetic industry, the sex industries. Tells you you will be beautiful, attractive. Right? We have all types of idols that actually human beings in this nation love to identify themselves by. Would you recognize this in your world today? Right? People that identify themselves by any of these things I just mentioned. And like I said, the list can go on and on. But what I'm trying to suggest to us is that uh, when it comes to idols, the question is not if they exist in any nation of the, earth, of the world. The question is, what are they? The question uh, with human beings is not if we will worship something. It is what or who we will worship. And Daniel lived in a world, a culture, that was the creation of the, of the gods it worshipped. And we, as American Christians in the, the 21st century, live in a culture that is infested with idolatry because that is what people worship. Right? There are a lot of people that are not Christians in America. There's a lot of people that do not associate themselves to Jesus, and perhaps they're atheists. But every person has a God, and worship is a creative act. So the world that we live in is the creation of human worship. Are you following me? No? Yes? Right? So it might not be holy worship, but that is irrelevant. Our worship will create something. We live just in the same way that Daniel did, just in the same way that people in India do. We live in a culture that is infested with idolatry. 
right? And the temptation that Daniel faced right off the bat was this is a new name. This is your name that culture is giving you. This is how you are going to find, uh, you know, influence within culture, power, perhaps, whatever it is, right? And Belteshazzar, that means favored by Bel, favored by Marduk. Right? And we all, I believe, in the same way that Daniel faced an identity crisis, we will all face an identity crisis in no lesser of degree, which is a temptation to identify our gifts, our callings, what the essence of who we are, our identity, according to the gods of culture, the idols of culture, instead of the God of Israel, instead of Jesus Christ. Right? This is a tension and a temptation that we will all face. So uh, I believe that, that Daniel, there's no, there's no accidents here, that the first, the first act, Daniel's first confrontation within Babylonian culture is over his identity, over his name, right? And so my thesis, this is all just kind of my introduction tonight, is that if we are to successfully leaven an idolatrous culture with the kingdom of God, we must have a very deep knowing of our identity, can you follow me on that tonight? You guys are looking at me real quiet. Did I jump in too deep, too quick? Okay. So to successfully leaven an idolatrous culture with the kingdom of God, we must have a deep knowing of our identity. So what is our identity? Um, the, the, the tagline amongst Christianity, it's not very hard to figure this out, but I'm sure we've all heard it, is we have an identity in Christ, right? And this, this largely comes from Paul's letters. Uh, if you, if you, you want to do something interesting, read like Ephesians and Corinthians, Galatians, read his books, and just look for that phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. That's like his go-to line, because he's really trying to, through repetition, Beat this truth into people that you, your identity is found in Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right, so this is beautiful theology, but the problem is that often this theology does not actually become incarnational in the way that we live our life. Right? I believe that the way you can find out your beliefs is you must, there, there's an incarnational litmus test to discover if your beliefs uh, that you say you believe are actually what you believe in essence, right? So a lot of times we will say, my identity is in Christ, but then we will live in such a way that actually speaks a very different message. Right, so for myself, uh, growing up, I, I could have I could have pulled that uh, that that statement out of the hat. I would have professed it's true. I would have said I believe it. I got saved when I was five years old. My mom was praying with me at bed at night. I said the prayer. I received an identity in Christ. But the truth is that though I intellectually assented with that statement, I did not believe that was true. And I grew up with raging insecurity that I worshipped an idol of athletics to try to appease. And I uh, basically found my identity, my self-worth, my emotional equilibrium, everything based on how I performed in my athletics. And that is what got me affirmation. That is what, and, and so basically I had a paradigm that I needed to be the best. I needed to beat other people. I needed to be the most powerful person in the room. I needed to be dominant to make myself feel good. And yet I was a Christian going to church and I would have told you my identity is in Christ, right? But my identity, I, though, though uh, in, 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 
in uh, theological truth, in potential of what I was given through salvation, that was true, I did not pass the incarnational litmus test. Does that make sense? Like what I professed, what I believed to be true, wasn't actually true, right? I didn't believe that I had an identity in Christ because uh, I was living in insecurity, fear, comparison, and I had a very low self-esteem. And I would say that it is highly incongruent to profess an identity in Christ, but to live in insecurity, fear, comparison, and a low self-esteem. Do you see how those things don't make sense? Right? So we have to begin, we, we really have to be incarnational with our walk. We actually have to pay attention to what is the real reality of what's going on. Christians can be notorious of like, I have all these truths, I know all the right things, but you have to have the humility, the courage to actually ask yourself and say, are these thieves incarnate actually bearing fruit in my life? Right? Are my beliefs incarnational? Is the word made flesh in me? That is what God's desiring to do. And these words are seeds. We have an identity in Christ in seed form, but we actually have to do the work of cultivating that seed so that it bears fruit, right? So I profess this, but I had this incongruency um, because uh, I, I did not yet know my identity, right? So how do we find our identity, right? Oh, I'm trying to... I'm trying to I'm trying to pull down into the, into the root system. I'm trying to, to expose superficiality. Sometimes we settle far too much in our walk with Jesus. We just settle for what we're told. We'll, we'll settle for this level when God is wanting to take this down into the depths of our heart, into a deep knowing of our identity. Right? And the truth about when it comes to our identity is that we are a living word of God that was uniquely created at the origination of, of our existence, right? There is nothing generic about who you are as an image bearer, as a child, as a son or a daughter of God, right? And identity, my identity in Christ is a tagline, right? But our identity in Christ is meant to be a life-altering reality that once you come into a real knowing and understanding, right? Which understanding means you can stand underneath something. You can see the whole thing. You, you actually possess knowledge, intimate experiential knowledge of your identity. You will never be the same. You will never live consistently in insecurity. You will not be bound by fear. You cannot have a low self-esteem because you will recognize that God spoke all the earth into creation, but when he formed you, that was far too much distance, and so he had to get down into the ground, and he formed you by hand and spoke a divine word that created you uniquely, nobody else, you, right? We pay like thousands of dollars for Louis Vuitton bags. You know why? Because they're the work of an artist, and we value, we will pay big money as human beings for things that are uniquely designed by great artists, right? And they're beautiful because there's something about that unique expression and that is who you are. You are a unique living word of God. 
In Ephesians 3.10, it says that we are his workmanship, right? That word workmanship in the Greek is poema, like a poem, right? And so I love the thought that we are actually divine poems crafted from the wisdom and the heart of God. So I, I just, it, like, just bear with me, imagine with me, God is down at the creation, at the origination of you, crafting you by hand. And then he spoke a divine poem that became you. He spoke a poem that is your identity and your destiny and your inheritance. I had a, a third grade teacher that I loved. She, she's probably my favorite teacher I had growing up. And uh, her name was Mrs. Armstrong. She taught us sign language, all kinds of things. She was just a, like a beautiful soul is how I remember her. And uh, I remember uh, she would often throughout the year, it was third grade, she would have us recite a poem uh, by Robert Frost called The Road Not Taken. I'm going to read this poem for you because I think it's a beautiful. And she used to tell us, this might not make a lot of sense to you now. She's like, but one day... You're going to remember it when you're old. You're going, to, you're going to look back. And this is one of those things that, and I was like, I don't understand, like, why? But it's funny. It, this, this poem's never left me my whole life. And this is, this is it. Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both. And be one traveler, long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, or just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as far that the passing there had warmed them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaf's no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that made all the difference. I love that line, I took the one less traveled by, and that's made all the difference. I can tell you many times in my life, I came back at decision makings and those words would ring in my mind. And I took the one less traveled by. The thing I love about poetry is that it is crafted with great intentionality. Every single word that is spoken in a poem is crafted by the author. There's not a word, a syllable wasted. There's limited space and every line is very, very intentionally crafted and presented as it's given to the world. And at the same time, it is a very subjective experience as you listen to poetry or read and reflect upon poetry. You may get 30 different things from 30 different people out of a poem. There's a certain sense of enigma to it. There's a certain sense to like beauties in the eye of the beholder. It doesn't tell you what to think of it. It just demands that you reflect on it. Are you following me? 
There's something very beautiful about poetry. There's something very beautiful about a poem. And Ephesians 3.10 is telling us that we are divine poems. Every word spoken, every aspect, every nuance that forms and creates you was a thought. He crafted and formed by God. He spent time. He put thought. He put his very self into forming you, right? When we do art, art is actually vulnerable, and I actually think it's one of the reasons that uh, the older we get, the, the science shows that we don't, uh, we stop creating art. And I believe it's because in our culture, we're afraid, we're terrified of vulnerability. And when you create something, you are creating out of who you are, right? We do, uh, I have the staff, we do art every, every couple weeks now, and uh, it's amazing to see that, that what people create, there's, it always looks like them. I could almost always pick, yep, that was so-and-so, that was so-and-so, that was so-and-so. Jay Caruza is always like really clean cut in the lines. I'm usually kind of flowing. Uh, you know, it, it just, my mom's always pretty with pink and hearts and flowers. Like it's very, very predictable what each people's going to create because we create out of who we are. And so when God created you, he formed you out of himself. You are an act of self-disclosure from God. Do you start seeing why insecurity has no place in a child of God? Do you see why fear has no legal grounds? Do you see why a low self-esteem is blasphemy? Because you are an expression of God. Every single, you're a divine poem. Your life is found in these words, right? And when God speaks a poem, it's different than when Robert Frost does. Yeah, I love this poem. It's marked me. But Robert Frost did not speak and create the world as we know it. The words of God are what created the world that we live in. And you are a divine poem. And every word that crafted and was spoken into your spirit has the life force of all creation woven into it. Because he is the author of life. I believe that the words of these poemas are what we all must come to discover Deeply, we will never know what to do with our lives until we know the words of these poems that God spoke when he crafted us. So how do we discover these words? Because this is how identity in Christ goes from a tagline to something that's altering my reality. Right? And uh, it's very simple. Uh, the discovery comes through prophetic utterance. You must hear these words from God yourself. I'm going to back that up with a lot of scripture here. I'm going to give you biblical example after biblical example of how uh, the saints of old found their identity in God. Abraham had a prophetic revelation. Uh, he was told a new name. Your name's not Abram, it's Abraham. Uh, it was through a direct encounter with God. Moses uh, saw the burning bush. He was told he was a deliverer. Joshua had an encounter with the angel of the Lord as he camped, as he camped uh, across the river before the battle of Jericho. Gideon had an angelic encounter where he came, you're a mighty man, you're not a coward, you're not insecure. Samuel 
had a vision, uh, a prophetic revelation, heard the voice of God as he was a young boy in the temple. David was given a prophetic word through the prophet Samuel, told that he would be a king. Solomon was given a dream in which God bestowed on him wisdom, which was his identity, his calling. Ezekiel was a third, in the beginning of Ezekiel, it says, in the 30th year, I was by the river Shabar, which is in Babylon, and I saw the Lord high and exalted, and he begins having these visions. What most scholars believe believe is that Ezekiel had trained his whole life, 30 years, to be a priest in the temple. The temple was ransacked. They were taken to Babylon. He was in a deep crisis. I've trained my whole life. When you turn 30, you step into the priesthood. Everything was wasted. But in the 30th year, he had a vision. And in that vision, he found that his identity was not taken from him. It was actually being granted to him. He was not a priest. He was a prophet came through the oracle of God. Jeremiah was given a prophetic word. Jesus was have a public encounter where the Spirit of God descended upon him. Peter was given a prophetic word. You're the rock of the church, and the church, gates of hell is not going to prevail against you. I'm going to build my church on this rock. And Paul had an encounter with God on the road to Damascus. I could go on and on and on and on and on, but every man, woman in this Bible, their story with God started with a direct encounter with God himself. And there is something that a soul will not be satisfied until they have heard from their father themselves. It was the author of life. It was your father that spoke and crafted you in the deeps where no one else saw and no one else knew. And so you can only find the answers to the questions that you're looking for in that same place, in that same sacred garden, in the secret place. Call it what you want. That is where you will discover the words to this divine poema that created created you and crafted you when you were originated out of the love and the goodness of God. We must have an encounter ourselves. If they needed one, we need one. That uh, makes some people uncomfortable when you say it. And that's because we're afraid of if God really wants to do that for little old me. And this is the truth. You are not an orphan. You are handcrafted by God, and he is your father. And psychologists will tell you in the world today, kids that raise in homes where the dad is gone, they will have deep identity wounds because it is the voice of a father that shapes and crafts the identity of a son or a daughter. And so we have to hear from him ourselves, and it is the great joy of his heart to speak identity and worth and value into the children that he loves. So you are not orphans. You do not need to be afraid if you hear this and say, well, I haven't had that. Well, now you know what you need. And now you know what he's longing to give to you. We have to trust the process. And sometimes we get in trouble comparing things. Uh, Sometimes in the process of discovering identity, you go through an extended wilderness. And then you come into a revelation. And sometimes you start with a revelation, and you go into an extended wilderness. And so you can't judge yourself. Oh, well, that person had an experience when they were 18 years old, and I'm 35, or I'm 50. You you can't do that, right? So uh, Joseph had a dream as a 17-year-old. It wasn't then a 13-year wilderness followed it. Paul had a vision and was given an identity on the road to Damascus. Then he went away into the wilderness for a number of years before he returned to talk with Peter. Jesus... um, 
has a revelation, then he goes 40 days in the wilderness. David has a revelation at 17 and then goes 13 years in the wilderness, right? And then to switch it, um, Moses had a wilderness for 40 years, then came into a revelation of his identity. Ezekiel had a crisis, a deportation, and then came into a revelation of his identity. So um, just to contextualize that for you, this is not some type of cookie cutter process. This is a beautiful, sacred journey that you go on with the Lord, but we must go on it to discover these words that God spoke when he created you, and that will only come from God himself. It can come through a messenger. It can come through many different ways, but you will know it came from God directly. Does that make sense? If they needed an encounter, we need one as well. Um, I'm just going to share a little snippet of my journey, and because uh, I think it will have a, a little thing that I think the Lord wants to reveal from it. Um, for me, I, I was like the Moses Ezekiel camp. Uh, I went through a wilderness before I had a revelation of who I was, and uh, I felt the Lord wanted me to share this. Um, there, there was a there's a time I, I think I've spoken maybe a, a little snippets of. Uh, when I, I was in Israel, and it's kind of a, I was in Israel for three months in 2010, I believe, maybe 2011, and it, this is really a microcosm of what about a five, six, seven years looked like for me, uh, but we went uh, to Israel in the midst of this wilderness and this deep searching for who I was, and I, I was hoping that I, me and my brother went with a one-way ticket. We landed in Tel Aviv to an email that said we had a place to stay. So that was a good email because uh, I didn't know what we were going to do if we didn't have that email. And we're like, okay, God, you're going to do this crazy, amazing thing, right? Like open doors and it'll be like Todd White in that one movie, right, in Israel. Like I'll be in the Temple Mountain no time, right, filming a video or something. Uh, we got there on the second day. There's these land riots going on, and we got caught up literally in like a uh, military battle with um, non-lethal stun grenades blowing up. People were bloody all around us. We ended up running with a stampede of Muslim youths and jumping underneath cars to escape the explosions that were going everywhere around us. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. It's probably the scariest thing of my life. And uh, you go on an adrenaline high, and then you go on an adrenaline crash. And I started freaking out going, what am I doing here? You know, you have kind of these grandiose thoughts sometimes of like, oh, I'm going to come. God's going to use me to bring revival to Jerusalem or something. And uh, when you come into contact with things that are that big and overwhelming, it just kind of puts you in your place. And I was like, why am I here? We have no reason to be here. We have nothing to do. And I was really troubled that whole night. And the Lord spoke to me, and he said, I brought you here so that you can pray. And I was like, okay, great. Like, yeah, I'll pray. And he said, no, like, so you can pray. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> it's like, all day, I want you to pray. That's it. And I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> couldn't I have stayed in college then? <laughs> like, this doesn't sound very fun. And um, from that place, I spoke to my brother. I said, this is what the Lord told me. He said, crap, man. That's what but we did it. And honest to God, I was like, shoot. And, uh, but we did it. And honest to God, for the next three months, I've never entered to a place like this in my life. I was voraciously hungry for the presence of God. We literally prayed, fasted, read our Bibles, 
all day, every day, and sometimes through the night, we would take shifts praying, seeking the Lord. We were probably young, zealous, probably many of those things, um, but we were hungry. And I, I, I know I read through the Old Testament at least once. I probably read through the New Testament 10 or 15 times at least. I was consuming the word of God. And I, I remember thinking often in those days, God, why am, why am I so hungry? What am I searching for? But I couldn't stop. It was like there was this, this compelling in me that I needed, I needed to consume. I needed something, and I didn't have the language that I do now. But when I look back on that season, which really is a microcosm, it's a three months of what seven years looked like for me, I, I was searching for the words. I was searching for my identity. I was searching for, for what is this poem that God crafted when he spoke and formed Jordan Verner. Who am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? I was so desperate for truth because everything was being stripped. Everything seemed empty and lost. And I just prophetic and know these words. And so I don't want you to confuse when I say prophetic utterance. I am not trying to sever that from the word of God. I believe that if you want to hear the whisper, you need to know the word. And I consumed this Bible. I, I, I devoured it. I ate the scroll again and again and again. And honestly, I can tell you, that time, nothing happened. There were no crazy revelations where I found out who I was. I didn't have a burning bush. It was just seeking the Lord fast searching I needed to know Jeremiah 33 says you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart I will be found by you declares the Lord that was my verse that is what I clung to for probably seven years I'm going to find you I don't even know what I'm looking for but I need this language that created me and I consumed the word of God. I, I, I sought him like a pearl of great price. And I now can see and look back that that, that season, and, and again, that's a microcosm of even a longer season, is what laid the foundation. It's what primed me and positioned me to then enter into a season of revelation. And I believe that if we want to hear the voice of God with greater clarity, if we want to be able to come into a deep knowing of his voice, we must begin with a deep knowing of his word. Those things are not to be separated. They are bound. They are married. They are one. And, and, and this poised me. And I went from there, and then I entered the next year of my life. It was, it was a year, about a one-year season, where revelation began to find me. And the voice of my father began to flood into me. And I had a series of dreams, encounters, uh, prophetic uh, utterances spoken over me from people that did not know me that began to unveil the poema of God that he spoke when he formed me. And I came into a very deep knowing of who I am as Jordan Werner, this man that was created and formed by God. And when I stepped into that knowing, I tapped into a very deep source of inspiration and belief. 
where there used to be insecurity, I found a resolute belief within me. I found a deep and undeferable conviction that this is why I was put on planet Earth. I found it, and it wasn't external. It wasn't circumstantial. It was a living poem on the inside of me that has stayed with me. It has been many years now, and it has stayed with me. And in times of doubt, in times when circumstances want to tell me and, and, and disappoint me and push me down, I can retreat in to these words that God spoke when he formed me. And I find the strength and the fortitude and the encouragement and the hope and the vision I need to keep pressing forward with purity of heart to will one thing that I will see it continue to come. Right? And, and, and from that knowing, that is sort of the bedrock. That is the, it's the river that just continues to push me forward. And all that's been created and all that I do, it comes from that place. People often ask me, Jordan, how do, you, how do you prepare your sermons? The best answer I can give you is I retreat into the knowing of this poema of God, of who he spoke me to be, and I'm always resourced in this place because I am a son of the living God and I have the fullness of heaven attached to my identity in Christ. People say, how are you doing this? How are you, how are you doing these things at 27? I found who I was because I sought him like a fine treasure. I sought him with everything I had. I, I forgo my comfort. I forgo my social life. I let go. I said no to a lot of things so I could say yes, unwaveringly yes to him. And I found my God and I found the words that originated me. And I'm still on a journey. I'm not done I want to know more, but something so deep took place in me. And that is why I say, like Daniel, if we are to engage in a culture that is infiltrated with idolatry, infiltrated with all types of landmines and booby traps that want to come and pull your identity to the affirmation that can come from life, because you can get it. You can get affirmation from the things that you accomplish. You can, find, you can find things that will satisfy temporarily in this life. And we will fall for those traps. We will fall for the praise of men. We will fall for these, these temporary feelings of dominance and power or wealth or whatever it is. We will be wooed by the idols of our culture unless we can retreat into this deep knowing that these are the words that God spoke in me. My name is not Belteshazzar. My name is Daniel. I am known by the creator. I am found in him. This is a crisis that we are all facing every day of our lives. And until we have this knowing, we are inequipped to do what we're called to do. feel like there's grace right now to be with the Lord. Uh, I'm not going to pray that, that suddenly you're going to have this revelation tonight because that's not, that's not what coming to Sunday is about. But I'm, I'm going to pray that in whatever way the Lord's ministering, that, 
that what he's doing tonight is going to lead and compel you more deeply into this discovery and this revelation of who you are as a divine creation of God. I thank you that you're here, Lord. I thank you, God, for the words that you spoke when you created us. I thank you for your holiness that's in this room. God, I bind all insecurity, fear, low self-esteem. Lord, and I plead your blood over those things tonight. God, I ask that you will take us on a journey of removing these hindrances that keep us from seeing and hearing the words that you desire to speak. Lord, for those that are in the wilderness, I ask that you'll give them grace for the journey. God, for those that are wherever they are, God, whatever step on this journey of coming into this deep knowing, God, I pray that you will give us grace. God, and I ask for the gift of hunger. God, a voracious appetite for the living word of God to consume this culture, to consume us, Jesus, that we will seek you that we will find you, God, that we will come into a deep knowing of who we are in your eyes. I thank you, God, and I ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation that you will open the eyes of our hearts so that we can know who we are in your eyes, God. Just have your way, Jesus. Have your way. Work in us however you want. Do whatever you want. We give you permission. We give you permission to do whatever it takes, God, to reveal these words to us. We must know. We must know them, Father. So we trust your heart. We don't strive to find these words, God. We strive to stay open and trusting in your goodness that you are our dad, that you are a father that delights in speaking your words of life into your children. I thank you, God, that each poem's different each story is unique, and the journey that you take us on to discover the knowing, God, is sacred and holy and beautiful. God, I pray that you will guard us from the temptation to compare, to compare timing, to compare the, the method, to compare the words, God. We just want to be alive to who you are and what you are and what you formed us to be. 
So I thank you, God, that you're stirring us tonight. And I pray, God, that you will continue to aggravate and stir us and disturb us, God. Disturb us like a, like a, a, a mighty wind, God. But tonight, we just want to orient our sails, God, to catch this wind so that you can propel us forward into the revelation of who we are in Christ Jesus. So I thank you for your grace. I thank you for what you're doing. And I say yes and amen, Lord. Hallelujah.